Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to talk today about handling problems well, and we're going to Acts chapter 6. You can can get that out. We're going to read it in a bit. Uh, Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, and we're going to look at an event, a, a crisis, a problem in the apostle's life, which God takes and turns into something remarkably wonderful. I want you to see that. And we, and we have, a, we have a, a, like a case study in front of us. We have how they handled the problem. Here we have the 12, the apostles of the Lord Jesus, handling a crisis. And I think you'll be amazed when you see some of, the, some of the things that were said and the things that are involved here. And you see them handle the problem, how they handled it. And I think we need that same kind of skills for us as well. Father God, open our hearts. We love the word. This is your word. This is truth. You breathed it. We ask for eyes that see, ears that hear, and tender hearts that hear and understand, and the gift of faith to believe and act on what we hear. I pray for the grace, God, to speak your word and not mine. Let your word come through now and anoint us all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'll start by reading Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. It says food, and that's in in italics, if you have that. Uh, That's speculation. It just says the daily ministry. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests we're becoming obedient to the faith. I will tell you, this sermon is for me. If no one else here enjoys this, I need it. This is something I tend to do, to procrastinate, to, to put things off, to avoid them. Anybody? All right. We're going to watch something. There's some important lessons. It's not a new problem. It's an old problem that didn't go away. Most of us tend to avoid confronting issues hoping matters will resolve themselves with the passing of time. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit that seldom, that seldom happens. 
Things that are broken don't fix themselves. Projects don't move forward without someone investing time and effort. And suspicion and alienation certainly aren't healed without someone taking deliberate steps to reconcile. What we see in our lesson today is a problem being handled well. The rapid growth of the church had brought in people from different backgrounds, and it wasn't long before the old cultural divisions sprang up. Charges had been leveled at the apostles that they had shown favoritism toward one group over another. And the situation had the potential to divide the church and ruin its witness. But it didn't. Instead, it became an opportunity for another miracle that stunned the community and caused even more people to want to become followers of Jesus. Instead of hurting the church's growth, it accelerated it. So how the apostles handled that crisis is a marvelous example of how to handle problems in our own lives. Let's rehear this story. Let's, let's, let's look a little deeper at it. The enormous growth of the church brought with it practical problems that needed to be solved. Luke describes this season in Jerusalem as days when large crowds of people were becoming disciples. That's the word. It, it says in mine, uh, when mul- they were being multiplied, disciples were being multiplied. The word has crowd in it, throng. The, when the church was thronging, the, church, the crowds were pouring in. When they gather, they're having massive crowds. These are massive assemblies of people that are, that are coming in. That's what he's trying to describe. With huge numbers pouring in, it's not surprising that conflict arose. In this case, there was grumbling among the Hellenists toward the Hebrews because they felt their widows were not receiving their fair share of resources being distributed. The Hellenists were basically Jews who spoke Greek, dressed like Greeks, and often had Greek names. They were usually Jews who had moved to Israel from other nations. When Luke says Hebrews, he means those born and raised in Israel and whose native tongue was Hebrew. Actually, in those years, most of the people in Israel didn't speak Hebrew, but rather a language from Syria, which was very similar to Hebrew, called Aramaic. Have you heard the term? Yeah, it's actually from Syria, but it's same alphabet, uh, very close, but it's not the same language. The Hellenists claim that their widows were being looked past is highly unlikely, since it appears that the apostles themselves were still running the benevolent ministry. This, remember that? It says they would, they would sell things and bring the money and lay it at the apostles' feet. The apostles were the ones giving out this resource, and it said they would give it as people had need. So somehow they assessed a need. I don't know what it was. They aren't giving food. They aren't running a big soup kitchen. These are, they're giving some sort of finance, some sort of amount. I don't know if you get a shekel. I don't know what you got. But they, they were giving out the benevolence, sitting at, at tables, giving out the benevolence. So they're being, they are the ones who are being accused. The apostles are being, it's suggested, overlooking the Greek-speaking widows. All right. A language barrier did exist between the two groups, and mistakes may have been made. At any rate, the perception of unfairness was enough to send the apostles to the Lord for guidance. The twelve convened a formal meeting of the entire church. Probably at the southern steps of the temple or some similar place so all could hear. This is a massive gathering. They said, we're leaving, 
we, us leaving the word of God to serve tables is not pleasing. That's the word, is not pleasing. And by this, they certainly meant it was not pleasing to the Lord. Apparently, they were still the ones distributing the benevolent funds, which had been coming in since the first days of the church, Tuesday. As time passed, the number of people needing this did aid grew rapidly, and the effort required on a daily basis became so demanding. Their participation in other areas of ministry was being reduced. See what's happening? When you have crowds coming in like this, and they have a commitment, remember this? That if you are thrown out by your, your spouse, I think that's where a lot of these widows are coming from. If, if you're thrown out, if you're left abandoned, the church will pick you up and care for you daily. So they are daily giving an allotment to those who are being abandoned, thrown out, divorced, uh, left unemployed. So when you have crowds coming in like this, the numbers of needy are growing at the same rate. So the apostles who started this out and have been sitting there giving out these, these this amounts to people are now overwhelmed. They're just doing more and more of this benevolence work. The most serious result was that the apostles were preaching less. Others may have attempted to take their place, but their voice was irreplaceable. No one else had been personally taught by Jesus to the same degree or appointed by him to lead his church. It's evident that the 12 had already prayed and sought the Lord's guidance in this matter because they presented the congregation with a well-conceived plan. They told them, to prayerfully reflect on those who are in the church and to identify seven men whose lives gave testimony to the fact that they were full of the spirit and wisdom. The apostles also showed us what they considered to be their most important responsibilities. They said they had to continue, and the the word is press into, to press into corporate prayer and the ministry of the word. How do I decide it's corporate prayer? Because it just says prayer. It's the word press into. It's, a, it's an unusual word. And it's used two, two places. One, in, a, in Acts 1.14, where it says they were all gathered in the upper room, pressing into prayer. It's a big prayer meeting. It's a corporate prayer meeting. I think that daily sort of gathering of the apostles, of the women disciples, of these, of these key leaders of the Lord, I think it's going on every day. I think that's the key to them being prophetically led. They are gathering before the Lord, worshiping, pressing in, and listening prophetically to the things, praying prophetically. It's not just routine rote prayers. They're they're waiting on God. He's showing them what, he's talking to them. They're praying it, they're interacting. This is the uh, spark plug, you might say. It's it's the life beat, the heart of, of, of what's going on. And then they go out and they preach. In this case, I think they're preaching not only in that Temple Mount anymore, because that's getting politically hot. I mean, you, you're really getting tension with those high priests. So I'm sure they still have those gatherings, but they're starting to preach, and there's a reference to it, house to house. So you got the 12, and they're needed now, traveling, and who, who knows how many. Can you imagine the hundreds Maybe it's the thousands of house churches that are going on. So they're traveling, they're visiting, they're teaching doctrine. They're teaching about the Lord. They're telling stories about Jesus. Wouldn't you love to hear that? Who'd want to sit there with, with, with Matthew, Levi, and let him tell you about how Jesus called him? Wouldn't that bless your heart? 
Well, these guys are supposed to be teaching. Instead, they're sitting there running the benevolence ministry. They understood these two activities to be foundational to everything else that was happening. And they were soon proven correct by Luke's observation in in verse 7. And the word of God grew and the number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly. After hearing the apostles' proposal, the entire congregation indicated their approval. How this was done is not mentioned. Then they set to work selecting seven candidates. Luke lists their names partly to introduce Stephen and Philip, who will both soon make significant contributions of their own, but also to show the wisdom of the congregation in picking seven Hellenists to oversee the distribution of funds. If the Hellenists had felt overlooked in the past, then the congregation would select men who spoke fluent Greek so that the mistake would not happen again. Each of the seven names is what? Isn't that amazing? This is a gathering of the total church. So you've got Hebrews, Hebrew speakers, and you've got Hellenistic Christian Jews now too, Greek speakers. They're all there. The apostles say to them, here's what the Lord said. You are to pick seven. Notice that? We're not going to pick them. You're going to pick them. It's supposed to be seven. They need to be full of the Holy Ghost, and they need to have wisdom. All right? That's what you need. Go. And their job is to pick it. Now, if there was, a, if there was some kind of cultural split where, 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 this, where they're really fighting over turf, you know the Hebrews would say, we want four of those seven. And the, and, the, and, the, and the Greek speakers say, no, we want four of the seven. In other words, if there's a vote on things, we want ha- over half. That kind, you'd have that kind of thing. Instead, look at what this lovely congregation did. If there's an offense, then let's, we, we just, we'll just vote in seven, seven Greek speakers. That's what we'll do. Isn't that lovely? It's a, there's a sweet heart in this group. That's a, it's there. Luke says the congregation set the men before the apostles whose first response was to pray, and then after that, they laid their hands on them. They may have conducted interviews with the seven and withdrawn for a season of listening prayer to confirm each nominee. That's not said. What they did in their prayer isn't clear. Then by laying hands on them, they symbolically bestowed on them the authority needed to do the ministry that they were asked to do. They're not praying for the... I'm sure they're asking a blessing, but they're giving them authority. They're placing the authority on these seven. Luke concludes this passage by noting that the church continued to grow. What had started out as a problem ended up being used by God to make the church even more effective. The word of God was now being preached to more and more people, even to the point of persuading a great crowd of priests to obey the faith. The number of people becoming disciples surged at a rate that was overwhelming. Listen, Luke actually says, uses a word, that the growth surged violently. The word is violent. Everybody's trying to figure out how do you translate that and why did he use violent? But that's the word. I don't think, it's not they're fighting. The point is, have have you ever been body surfing and, and that big wave takes you and just shoves you? I mean, it's violent in a sense. It's way overpowering you. You're now out of control. You're just along for the ride. Hopefully you want to go that direction because that's where you're going. What he's picturing is waves of people coming in at such a rate 
nobody's in control. This thing has gotten to be a, a mass people movement. And crowds are swelling in. And it's literally violent. They're all just being carried along now by the work of God. He is doing a work in the city. And this event actually surged it. This problem, this crisis, this potential split ended up, when handled well, surging the church all the more. Uh, it's, it, it's interesting that Luke did not use the title disciple earlier in Acts. Now in chapter 6, he uses it three times in the first seven verses. Previously, he used terms like multitude, church, and believers. But here he begins to employ that familiar term found so often in the Gospels, and he will go on to use it a total in Acts of 28 times. By using this word, Luke assures us that even though massive numbers were pouring in, the quality of what was taking place within each individual was not diminished. People were becoming true disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's look more closely at this event and see what principles we can learn from the way the apostles handled this problem. Number one, would you read it out loud with me? Face. You know, I just need to cover that one. I know you all do. I do too. Uh, We never delay, so let's just hear it just because it's there. In view of the fact that the apostles themselves were the ones being charged with unfairness, let that sink in. Can you imagine? You're accusing the 12 of overlooking the Greek-speaking widows. It would be very natural to want to avoid the matter as long as possible. And though Luke doesn't tell us how long they waited, the way he narrates the flow of events implies that the issue was addressed as soon as it came up. They didn't deny the charges. They didn't become offended. They didn't blame others. And they didn't pull rank by reminding everyone that they were apostles. Even though they were the ones being accused, they didn't let it get personal. Notice that? They addressed it right away. They, dealt, they went to the Lord and said, what do we do? I, I, this, I, I wrote this in my prayer journal a while back. This was for me. Patience is waiting while something good matures. Procrastination is doing nothing while something bad continues. You want to read that out loud with me? Might not hurt. Patience is waiting while something good matures. Procrastination is doing nothing while something bad continues. Here's a, let me add a caution here. There are bad situations where we still choose to wait patiently for God to move on someone's heart. We do this prayerfully and in hope because we love the person. There are situations you'll put up with because you're supposed to. It's an assignment. And you know that. It's an assignment of love. You love the person. You love the situation. And so you simply live with it and and endure it in hope. That's an assignment. But it's very different than not doing anything because you don't have the courage, because you you hope it'll go away, uh, all of those kinds of things. That's the difference. Procrastination is one thing. There is a place, I know, for living with difficult things. I came across a book in the airport. It's called Nine Things a Leader Must Do by Henry Cloud. And in this, he's got a chapter called Yank the Diseased Tooth. How's that for an image? He says, we need to clear out clutter, dead weight, things we keep around and that don't help us, but take up space or drain resources. 
Get rid of things you're not using. Maybe you can relate to a few other examples. Relationships that are not going anywhere or are taking you places opposite of where you want to go. Do we carry bad relationships? Activities at work or home that are not getting you where you want to go. You just keep doing them. Things that you own or are paying for that you're not using that are not bringing you true lasting benefit. Sell it, hawk it, give it, you know. Time you are spending that is not contributing to your well-being or mission as a leader, as as a minister. Either fill the cavity or pull the tooth. Want to say that? Either fill the cavity. Yeah. And sooner the better. Then new energy, resources, time, space become available to you to focus on things that have life in them. The negative energy drain is stopped, making room for the good stuff. And he's, then he says something. He says, here's the real issue. You still invest energy. When you try to ignore a problem, it doesn't get ignored. It pops up at night. It pops up in your, in, when you're in your quiet moments. It hounds you. It haunts you. It drains you. It doesn't go away. It just comes up at the most inopportune moments. He says another troublesome aspect of allowing negative things to continue past their time is the way the mind deals with them. Think about it. When do you worry about plaguing avoided, unresolved negative issues? The answer for most of us, when you can do the least about them. When we avoid facing things directly, they tend to grab us at the times when we cannot address them effectively. For example, the financial issue that you avoided at the office pops into your mind the moment you lay your head on the pillow or when you wake up in the middle of the night. Middle of the night's my special time. And first thing in the morning, I'll wake up, come into consciousness, and I'm, and I'm chewing on something. <laughs> the character issues of your 19-year-old son that have bugged you for years are not faced until he flunks out of college or gets sent home for drug abuse. <laughs> your tendency to commit act to activities you don't like, how do you like this one, brings up resentment when it's time to attend to them. You say you'll do it, and then when you have to do it, you're angry. Because you didn't really want to do it at all. You'd hoped it went away. But you didn't do anything to get out of them. The job you hate but are holding on to for no good reason causes frustration as you drive to work every day. Working on a project with an employee that you know you should have fired last year makes you angry. He says, if either fill the tooth or yank it. How many of us carry bad teeth, painful things, situations that should have been resolved, and we're running away from them, and they don't get handled? What, what I want you to see here is there is a model in front of us of how to handle it. Sometimes I know I should handle it, but I don't know what to do. This is a really good model of how we can handle it. Look at this next point. Seek God's guidance. Would you say that? Notice Luke talks about the 12 as if they were one person. When they stood in front of this enormous congregation, they had already spent time together before the Lord and had come into agreement Before taking any kind of action, they had gathered and listened for God's guidance as a team, not alone. The hardest part of guidance is hearing God's will for our own lives. Some of us tend to avoid any words of correction. Others tend to dismiss any words of affirmation and promise. Oh, that's just me. God tries to speak to you something positive. You dismiss it and think, oh, that's just happy self-talk. 
Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah. See, he can hardly get a nice word to you. The only words you'll hear are the negatives. We need to learn to listen to God with others. Now, listen carefully. People who are fully surrendered to the Lord, who come with no agenda, who are able to listen to the spirit and not just reason with the mind. And then we pray and discuss together until we sense the, what, that the Lord has spoken. The whole process is done collectively. It's not the same as asking a number of people to tell us what they think and then adding up votes. Do you see the difference? Some people, when they're going to get counsel from others, they run around and they say, what do you think I should do? And then they kind of take these and either add up votes or decide on the one they like. That, that is not a spiritual process. That isn't this at all. This is sitting down with some trusted people. Do you have in your lives people that, that you could say have no agenda? I mean, there are certain people that they'd love to sit down and tell you what to do. They have already decided what they wanted you to do for a long time. And this would just give them an opportunity to tell you again. That's not what you're looking for. You're looking for people who could sit with you and listen to the Lord. And it's a listening in dialogue. Did this Thursday. I've had a question in my mind about, about some of our prayer ministry. And I, I, I called in the, the pastoral department and, I, and our directors. And I said, I, I, just, I need to talk about something. I need, to, I need us to listen. So we sat down and said, Lord, Holy Spirit, speak. Didn't, didn't, didn't have an answer. Didn't have a plan. Speak to us. And I said, here's, here's my concerns. Here's what I'm seeing. What do we do? Starts out the conversation, you know, you're, 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 you're listening prophetically. There'll be kind of prophetic words in this. There's, there's people sharing their heart, sharing things. And then you can kind of, it, it's, it's interesting. Somebody will say something that just resonates. There's, a, there's an insight. And they begin to put a perspective on things, even in my own life, that I hadn't seen. They, I began to see this situation or see the needs and define them as, as we talked. It became a clearer what, what kind of thing ought to be done. Do you have such people in your life? I'm suggesting we are too much alone. To be quite honest with you, some of you I talk to and you tell me, you know, you've been off in the mountains or whatever and you've been talking to God and, and I don't know how to tell you this nicely. You're a bit strange. Yeah, you're getting weird. And, and some of the things you're saying, you just need somebody with some common sense to talk to you. You mean well. You're not doing anything wrong, but you're getting way too spiritual. When you sit with others, spiritual people, and you, and you talk together with them, there comes out, a, there's something healthy and balanced in it. Bible says, in a multitude of counselors, a purpose is established. I'm thinking of a situation in a far country, another place, not here. Uh, there was a lead, one of our leaders and, and just had some things in his head, some, some directions in his head. And another brother and I sat down with him and said, Can, we just need to talk to you. We just need to have a dialogue here about this. There were things and ways that were going that did not look, look good. Uh, and, and some of the decisions that were being made, I, I think, were, were poor. And we just said, we need to talk. He wasn't wild about this. 
uh, he, he functions independently. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's four square, but he's, he functions independently. And, and so there was a little bit of like, so who invited you guys in, you know? Well, if it wasn't us, it's nobody. I mean, and so we sat with him and, and just said, we just need to talk and, and begin to dialogue. And in the course of the dialogue, you know, the, the various things are coming out, alternatives, suggestions, some thoughts, looking at it in perspective, putting things, things he didn't entirely want to hear. And then we said, now, let's just pray together and see, you know, what God says. And we, we waited before the Lord. And, and then he, he, you know, he, he said, well, God tells me, you know, basically do what I'm going to do. And, and he did inform us. He said, now, I got to do what God tells me to do. There's truth to that. I mean, bottom line, you're, you know, you're going to eat the lunch. You might as well order it. I mean, you're going to stand before God and you're going to give account for your life. I'm not going to give account for your life. You are. So bottom line, you do have to do what you feel. But, but that independent, don't tell me, I'm going to go to God by myself. I'm going up the mountain like Moses, get the word, come down, and I'll tell you what he says. There's something wrong with that level of independence. And you don't see it here. You don't see the 12. You don't see Peter going, I'm the top dude, okay? I'll go talk. I'll tell, and I'll come and tell you what he says. You don't see that. It's the 12. And with, when they say the 12, it's that whole upper room full. It's, it's men and women prayerfully before God, listening together. Life groups could, can supply this. LTGs can supply this. But you do need to say, who's in my life that would speak into my life? I made a, a remark in a larger meeting that this one leader was saying. I said, there's just something wrong with people who say, I'm going to do what God tells me to do. You know, and, and it smarted. It, it stung him because that's exactly what he's doing. And he feels very good about himself. But the more he does it, the more alone he gets. And he's making some bad choices. Did, did we win? I don't know. I don't think so. I think he's going to do what he's going to do. And, and what do we do with that? Will you just say, we love you. We're praying for you. And then I am. I'm still praying for him on a regular basis. But there's no, I, I hope he's right. I hope he's right. Surprisingly, God's answer is often very different from any of the options we considered initially. This is important. We might have thought the only possible choice was between A or B. But when God finally reveals his will, the real answer turns out to be C, something we never even thought about. Have you had that experience? So you start sharing and praying together. Somebody brings up something. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Oh, I forgot totally about that. And the picture emerges. The, the, the thing looks different. And the answer is quite different than what you thought. None of this is meant to remove an individual's responsibility to do what they believe the Lord has told them to do, regardless of what others say. But if submitted too humbly, this, this process will help prevent us from being locked into a position where we refuse to allow anyone to speak common sense to us, where the only voices we're willing to hear are people who agree with us. Number three, let God correct us first. Would you say that? When God shows us the situation from his perspective, usually everyone will experience some degree of correction. If you, if you, you'll sit down on these things, and God will correct everybody in the room. 
surrendered hearts always ask, Lord, what did I do or not do in this? Everybody in the room is going to say, Lord, what part did I contribute? What did I do or not do? How, do you, how did I fail in this? That's what a surrendered heart will do. You never in a real Christian environment end up where you have winners and losers. It is never a trial. It is never about finding out who's wrong here. That is the flesh and the world. When you sit before God, he's basically got something to say to everybody. I don't know how many meetings I go into feeling really good about myself. Thinking, I'm not even part of this. And then, boy, the Lord zings me. And it's not unkind, but it's like, and here's what you didn't do, Steve. Where were you? Well, I didn't even think about it. And, I, and, and he's not being unkind. But he just shows truth. Truth is really quite the deal. Let him correct us first. In this case, he doesn't chastise the apostles for overlooking widows. Do you notice that? Because undoubtedly, nothing of the sort was intended. But he does tell the 12 that the way they were using their time didn't please him. They had drifted off track and didn't know it. What had started out as their assignment, giving out this benevolence dole, stopped being their assignment somewhere along the line. And this was probably the real reason the the problem arose. So the first thing they, in other words, the anointing had lifted. They were still doing something that God had stopped wanting them to do. So the first thing they had to tell the congregation was that they had neglected their call to preach the word by letting the demands of the benevolence ministry control them. They seek the Lord. He does discipline them, but not saying you, you had some kind of prejudicial treatment. That's not even, that's not at all true. You'd lost track of your priorities. Number four, be willing to lead. Would you say that? Then they placed before the congregation the plan God gave them. They didn't ask for suggestions and they didn't take a vote. They simply said, here's what God said to do. There is a dying to self in being willing to lead. It exposes us to criticism and people may grow emotionally distant. Many run from becoming leaders. They may say it's because of humility that they aren't worthy. But the real reason, I assume usually, is that they resist is because they fear the pressure and responsibility. As a leader, they'll have to set standards, hold people accountable, discipline if necessary, make the hard decisions no one else wants to make. The apostles weren't proud, arbitrary, or egotistical about their role. But they knew that it was First of all, their job to seek the will of the Lord. And then when they'd heard from him to do what he said. In other words, to lead. People, when you seek the Lord and when you know his will, it virtually turns you into a leader. In whatever situation, whatever family, business, doesn't matter where. In any situation, you suddenly have the mind of the Lord. And when you know that you know it and you got to follow through on it, it, it's, it's a responsibility you can't run from. You, you're no longer just sort of a passive bystander. You now, have a, you now have a responsibility. There's an accepting of that mantle. Number five, be willing to follow. Would you say that? The plan God showed them required the congregation to discern the will of God as well. The apostles had been shown a structure, but not the names of those who would fill the positions. Basically, the apostles told them, you pick seven and we'll put them in charge. 
They set the standards as to what to look for, but then respected the congregation's choice. I suppose if they'd felt any of the nominees wasn't suitable, they would have said so, but after preparing themselves in prayer, they appointed all seven. Do you see this give and take here? The apostles don't say, now we've been in prayer, and here's who we're going to appoint. They simply said what God gave them, and all God said is, have them pick seven. And so there's a respecting of the congregation. There's a respecting of others here and their ability to hear God. Number six, and this is really important, read it loud. Expect problems to become a source of strength. This isn't happy talk. Hang on to this. Now watch. A well-resolved problem is as miraculous as a healing. There's little doubt that word must have spread through the city that grumbling had arisen in the church and a split might emerge. The tension between Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews was a familiar cultural problem. And the enemies of the church must have been delighted at the prospect of a divisive fight, particularly if the grumbling was aimed at the apostles themselves. But the fight didn't come. It disappeared as fast as it had sprung up. And the two sides were suddenly moving forward in even greater unity than before. And that was a miracle as profound as the healing of the lame man. So the crisis ended up acting like a rocket booster, pushing the church to even greater growth. And one group that may have been especially moved by the reconciliation they saw was the priests. After all, if there was anything they knew firsthand, it was the divisiveness of religion. They were immersed in a culture where there were many different groups angrily criticizing each other. So to watch a dividing line that probably affected them as well disappear and people resolve their issues peacefully must have been a powerful witness. This may be why Luke adds, and a great crowd of priests obeyed the faith. That's what he says. Jesus said that this would happen. Would you read this? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We think of the priests in terms of Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, this, this kind of wealthy, powerful, corrupt group of Sadducees. But don't think of all priests like that. Levites are a tribe, and they live all over cities in Israel, and they also live all over the world. Remember Barnabas? Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. So what happens, you live all over the world, and they will, so there's Greek-speaking priests, Levites, as well as Hebrew. And so Barnabas would come when his family time was, his number was up, he would come and serve in the temple. And then he'd go home. So you got Greek-speaking, Hebrew-speaking. These people live in this. They live in the middle of all of, the, all of the strife. And then to watch the church have a divide and then watch them resolve it like this. Humbly, everyone puts seven Greek speakers and they go on together in love. That hit them like a ton of bricks. And, and, and Luke says right there, and a great crowd of priests obeyed the faith. In other words, imagine all of these priests being baptized. They're being baptized. They're saying, I want to be part of that. When I see that kind of love, when I can see that kind of, that's a, that miracle spoke to them probably more than the healing. Can you imagine that when family fights 
long-standing bitternesses, issues that have hounded you for years, suddenly being resolved well. Coming into peace, things going forward well. The impact of it is huge. Jesus prayed for us too. Read that with me, would you? That they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So as we enter the new year, are there problems that you or I have avoided addressing directly? Is, if there's one or maybe several, then we have in front of us an example of how the apostles addressed their problems. And we would be wise to learn from them. If we do, then we too will face problems quickly, not avoid them and hope they'll disappear. You want to say amen to that? Seek God's guidance first of all. We'll carefully avoid reacting in the flesh and when needed, we'll gather with others to listen. Want to say amen? We'll humbly listen for his correction of us first. Amen? We'll be willing to lead, to act on what he's told us to do and endure criticism if necessary. Amen? We will respect others' ability to hear from God. We won't assume we are the only ones who can hear his voice. Please say amen. Amen. Expect our problems to be healed or at least handled well and to become the source of even greater blessing. Picture that. We have a process. We can hear the mind of the Lord and if we will address things, he will actually take those messes And turn them into something of great blessing in your life. That's the promise. Do you believe he'll do that? Here's an example of of our 12. Of our apostles. Doing just that with a mess. They're showing us how. They're showing you how. They're showing me how. Who can read this passage and not think of Paul's promise to the Romans? Have you been thinking this promise as you went through it? I sure did. I couldn't, no sooner read it than Romans 8, 28 comes out. Let's read that. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Here is a situation. God's taking it and causing it to work for good. The church is growing all the more. God didn't just magically make their problems disappear. They had a clear part to play in the process. Their participation was required. But they did their part, and he did the rest, causing a dangerous development to become a glorious witness to the entire city. And he'll do the same for us if we'll do our part. Shall we address... Some of those problems that we've been dragging along. Are there issues that need to be handled, that need to be faced? First thing you do, you don't just go wading in and create a mess. You seek the mind of the Lord. And you may well need to seek the mind of the Lord with somebody else, with some others. Come out of that isolation. Come out of the cocoon. Come out of the loneliness. And sit down with some trusted people and say, pray with me, would you? Listen with me, would you? Let's learn to move prophetically. Learn to let the Lord speak into these situations. I'll tell you, when he does, your heart leaps. You know it. 
You've been in this confusion and then suddenly something comes and you go, there it is. Why didn't I see that? And it's just beautiful when you say, okay, there's the answer. And it's, it's, like, it's like the problem instantly is solved already before anything's been done because you know what to do. That's there for us, people. He's there for us. We do not have to drag these things along. I'm preaching to me. I've already started, actually. I've already been taking some action on a number of things. I just, I just avoided. Everybody says, oh, pastor, you're just so nice. No, I'm not. I'm a coward. <laughs> I wish it was all. Well, some of it's nice. There's a little bit of nice in there. But for the most part, I just avoid it and hope it goes away. How does that work? How does it work? It makes me want to run away and, and, and hide. Makes me want to quit. And it isn't God's fault and anybody's fault. It's my fault. But part of my problem is I don't know that I always saw as clearly as I did here today how to deal with it. That I should deal with it I knew, but what to do? My old, because if, if I'm not wise in the way I deal with it, I just go get angry and make it worse. That didn't help anything, does it? I, save you the trouble. Don't do it. <laughs> but moving forward in the, in, the, in, in the guidance of the Lord, moving forward quickly, moving forward with the counsel of others, that's a totally different deal. Who today has... As you listen to this, you say, okay, I see my apostles and I see how they handled this. And I am going to, I have issues. I have some things that I have dragged, maybe not only into 2013, but I dragged it into 2012. I've been dragging this puppy along for a while and it's tiring me out. It's taking the joy out of life. That's what really goes, isn't it? You begin to hate life. Because it's just one mess after another. And, the, and the, these things don't go away. They just sap our strength. They take our joy. And then when they are addressed and the Lord has resolved them, it's, it's, it's like you have a whole new lease on life. This is why we're so sad in many ways. It's one of the reasons. It's that's, that's, that's just like we are dragging a ball and chain. And God wants to free us. And he has ways to do it. His promise is he'll cause all things to work for good. Not magically, but when we do our part, he steps in and does his part. So, Father God, here we are facing a new calendar year. Hearing the word of God and being challenged, Lord, to allow you to truly bring resolution, healing, direction, love into some of these painful things. Lord, we, we'll just start by saying, forgive us for, for harboring old things. Forgive us for avoidance, where it's been that. I think you understand, Lord, that for many of us, I'll say for me, I don't know that I always saw how to deal with it exactly. But Lord, you're showing us. The word has a, a blessing to it and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, an open opportunity. And so we choose to follow the word. And by faith, Lord, thank you for your clear guidance. Thank you for dear brothers and sisters who will pray with us and think with us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for prophetically speaking into these situations, showing and revealing the plan and the answer. Thank you, Lord, for taking our problems and making them great blessings. 
We confess that. We declare it. We stand in faith on it. We enter a new year confident of it. You are strong and faithful. And we have a great year ahead of seeing your hand. Who needs to raise your hand right now and say, I I know I've got an issue. And by the Lord's grace, I'm going to address it. Would you go ahead and raise your hand? Just hold it before the Lord. Lord, see our hands. See our hands. May the power of the Holy Spirit be with you. May the Lord guide you, give you who you need. May the Lord protect you. May the Lord expose fear and lies and confusion. May the Lord speak his word of truth right into your heart and grant you the gift of faith. By faith, we agree with you. This is a year of resolution. This is a year of of healing. This is a year of finishing with old things. This is a year when the ball and chain go away and you run again full of joy. This is that year. We agree with you. In Jesus' powerful name, if you receive that, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.